A few times a year, the Jewish people would make a journey to Jerusalem, usually in a celebration, a remembrance, an act of worship. The Passover, for example, often shows up in the gospel narratives. From all over Israel, they would journey to Jerusalem, and as they would journey, they would sing through their songbook, what we have as the book of Psalms. The final leg of the journey was a pretty steep elevation from the plains of Israel up to Jerusalem would have been uh, roughly 2,500 feet of elevation to cover, some of it quite steeply. And because of this notable incline or ascent, the psalms that were sung at the end of that journey as they came toward Jerusalem were known as the Psalms of Ascent. And in this difficult journey of making their way up a mountain to Jerusalem, they were reminded of their difficult journey, uh, their pilgrimage of the Christian life. And so listen again to this song that was sung as they looked ahead at the miles of mountainous trail that led up to Jerusalem. The word of the Lord to us in Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. The theme isn't hard to find in Psalm 121. In just eight verses, we have six mentions of one particular word. I'm sure you heard it. A quick glance would reveal it. That word is keep. Keep. And so our theme is simple. God keeps you. He keeps you now in this life and forever. His providential care includes protection, it includes guidance, it includes sustaining strength for whatever he asks of you. In four parts, this psalm assures us that God keeps you now and forever. Many songs have been written about this psalm, put to melodies of different sorts, one choral arrangement I listen to on a playlist every week, uh, almost without fail. Cindy must have like-minded music list. I know she loves Southern Gospel like I do. Uh, but she sent me a YouTube video of the exact YouTube video that I often play throughout the week. And it's the simple title, My Help Comes from the Lord, and it's sung by the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. 
so you may enjoy a, a watch and a listen there this week. Uh, God keeps you now and forever. The first part of this song is verses 1 and 2. And we'll entitle this, In Need of Help. In Need of Help. The psalmist says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? Where does my help come from? What a question. It has a rhetorical feel to it, does it not? Like we know what the answer is supposed to be. My help comes from the Lord. That's the right answer. That's the, the answer you give in the discussion in Sunday school hour. Where does my help come from? And our hands go up and we respond, well, of course, it comes from the Lord. But there is also a sense of conviction that this question provokes when we realize that our first reaction to life circumstances is often not, my help comes from the Lord. We're prone to independence, and we often react in the spirit of our age with, I can do anything I put my mind to. We lean hard on our gifts and our resources, and we tend to live by sight rather than by faith. Where does your help come from? Your personality? We say things like, well, let me talk to him. I'm good with people, or I think I know how to smooth this out. Your income? Ah, bummer. But we'll be okay. We've got plenty in savings. We've got a good retirement. I know the, the economy's really labored recently, but it, it'll be okay. Maybe it's your work ethic. You know, you, I'll just work a little bit harder, stay up a little later. We'll put in some extra time. I can do this. Your relationships. Well, I have a good circle of friends or a loving spouse. Where does your help come from? Your religious lifestyle. I've been a Christian for a long time. I know what I'm doing. I know how this works. All of these things, these gifts, these resources may be a part of God's solution, but none of them are the answer the psalmist is looking for when he says, where does your help come from? God may ask you to work hard and work late nights. God may use the gifts of your personality and your temperament to engage someone or to make peace with someone. In all these helps that we listed, God may be evident in them, but they cannot be first and foremost our answer to the question, where does my help come from? And if you're like me, life hits us at two o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon or Thursday morning or Friday afternoon at the playground at the mom's play date. Well, actually the children's play date, but the moms are usually there too. And, and something happens and we react and we throw ourselves into the fix, the solution. We get the bad news on the phone and we begin to figure out how we're going to work it out and, and take care of this. And the psalmist is reminding us that when life hits us, 
like that view of the mountain up ahead, and we know it's a long trail before us, fraught with difficulties and hardships, we're to ask the question, where does my help come from, and immediately answer with the primary answer, my help comes from the Lord. Now the Lord, in the dispensing of his grace, may call on us to use our resources and abilities, but our help comes from the Lord. Because even in our person, in our finances, and our work ethic, in all these gifts, we would have to ask with Paul, what do I have that I haven't received? So I am, but I am by the grace of God. Our help comes from the Lord. So by asking this somewhat rhetorical and convictional question, where does your help come from? The psalmist is making two points. The first being, I can't. I can't. Help is not ultimately sourced in me doing more. I'll figure this out. I'll make it work. No, I can't. This is an acknowledgement that you need help when you say, I can't. Where does my help come from? The psalmist is acknowledging it's not in him. It's coming from somewhere else. And so lift up your eyes to the hills. Consider the challenges of your day tomorrow and this week and ask the question, where does the help that I need to make it through tomorrow and this week come from? How will I make it through? I can't. It's not in me. But, number two, God can. My help comes from the Lord. It's interesting that in both cases, it's my help. Where does my help come from? That's help that I need. That's why it's mine. My help comes from the Lord. The Lord's power or provision, but the psalmist still claims it as mine. My help comes from the Lord. In other words, the psalmist is looking up this mountain trail, and he knows it's a long ascent. And he recognizes my help comes from the Lord, but I still have a trail to walk. There will still be the long, agonizing ascent. I can't, but God can. And further, the God who can help me is the maker of heaven and earth. That's a significant title. The church, going back to the second century, thought this was an appropriate title to capture all of what God is and to introduce him to us. And they did so in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. They felt that was a fitting description to, to motivate us, that if we say, I believe in this God, then I have to know he made everything that is. So anything that is that troubles me is, is like a Lego to the Lord. He made it all. We're completely overwhelmed by 
things that we encounter, but they are all things that are under the creative and sustaining power of God. The maker of heaven and earth is not merely some creationist argument against evolutionary theories of origin. It's this bold declaration that absolutely nothing is beyond his absolute control. No evil person inhales air without the okay of God. So you think of the people in countries around the world that are persecuting the church. They don't lift a weapon apart from God's approval. He's the maker of heaven and earth. If we're going to cry out to someone for help, who better than the one who holds absolute sway over all things? If he sustains everything by the word of his power, of course he can help you. So lift up your eyes to the hills and ask the question in the face of trouble and hardship, where does my help come from? It comes from the Lord. It's interesting writing. The psalmist asks a question. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. And then he goes on to speak to himself. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he keeps Israel. He will neither slumber nor sleep. We go from the my and I to you and your. So some question, maybe this song was like antiphonal singing. One, one crowd would sing the question and the other would sing the answer. But I think it probably just fits with other psalms in what we would call an, an internal conversation. We've talked in the Sunday school hour about having these conversations with ourselves. The psalmist asks the question and then he seems to answer his own question. Much like Psalm 42, a song that we sing. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Well, he's talking to himself. And then he says, hope in God. He's preaching the message to himself. Some of you might do this in your home. Well, why are you thinking that way? You might even say it out loud. I think that's not a bad idea. Speak truth to yourself. Remind yourself that God can. When you see the trouble, just embrace right at the start. Where's the help going to come from? Because I'm not up to this. I didn't look for this. I didn't sign up for this. And I don't think I'm up to the challenge. So, Lord, where will the help come from? We need to get back to this remembrance that I can't, but God can. Daily, I can't, but God can. We talked parenting in the Sunday school hour, and probably one of the greatest convictional kind of texts that were raised were the imitation passages of our children imitating us. If they did that, would they get it right? Would they grieve the Holy Spirit in any way or would God be pleased? That's a challenge. A challenge that likely we would look at and say, I, I can't live that way. I can't do that. Where's the help going to come from? God can. As a kid, I would sing along with the Gaither Trio on their album, I Am a Promise. 
Anybody remember that one? All right, well, the three of you can join me afterwards in singing it, right? One of the songs talked about all the things we can't do, but then reminded us that the God who made it all can. Lyrics were things like, I can't make the lightning stop, can't make earth produce a crop, I can't make it rain a drop, but God can. Uh, And over and over, a couple of verses, all the things that we can't do, but God can. He's the maker of heaven and earth. So, okay, your week may have its challenges. In home, at the home, in the workplace, with your neighbors, your car breaking down, whatever it is. Stop and ask the question, where does help come from? It comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. I can't, but God can. We picture the psalmist in Psalm 121 with the, with the crowd of people on this pilgrimage to Jerusalem. They're at the base of a whole series of mountains that ultimately ends at Jerusalem. Now they're hiking up this mountain and they're huffing and puffing, looking at the long, hard journey ahead. They're worried about the heat during the day. They're worried about the bandits at night. They're wondering if there really is safety in numbers. They're a little concerned. The donkey's limping. Is he going to make it all the way? I wonder if it's raining back at home to water the crops because it's not looking good for this year. All these swirling thoughts. And then there's this sound that interrupts the the stewing and the worrying. And sure enough, they've begun singing the songs of ascent. And they hear that question sung out. From where does my help come? And now the psalmist yields himself to the truth and sings along, my help comes from the Lord. If the donkey doesn't make it, the maker of the donkey will figure it out. If the rain doesn't come for the crops, the maker of heaven and earth must be providing another way. If the bandits come and plunder our caravan, well, the maker of heaven and earth will hold them accountable and will give us what we need. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. So does life have you a bit winded on the ascent, on the pilgrimage? Are you worried about diminishing investments? Your health isn't what it used to be. You're wondering if this job's going to work out. Is it too many hours, too much time away from home? You're trying to be a good spouse, feeling desperate to be a good parent. Rehearse the truth. Do what the psalmist appears to do in Psalm 121. He'll ask the question and then he'll talk to himself. He'll give himself the answer. My help comes from the Lord. So verses 1 and 2 show us that we are in need of help. But now recognize in verse 3 and 4 the stability of the help that comes. We're in need of help, but the second stanza of the song is about the stability of the help that comes. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. 
Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Notice, first of all, that the help that comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, it works. He will not let your foot be moved. That's a much smaller concern than we had at first. We were looking up this uh, inclined trail to Jerusalem, thinking all kinds of big eye thoughts and big troubles and what's going on. And, and God say, no, the, the next step you take will not falter. Th- this goes along with the idea of like he knows the hairs of your head. He's got them numbered. He's not going to let one step slide on the gravel on this rocky mountain trail to Jerusalem. That, that's how particular his help is. So it works. God's promise is you will not slip. He is able to keep you from falling. It works. But he expands on that. He could have left that as stanza number two and we could jump to verses five and six, but instead he kind of labors on this point to make sure we understand exactly what this help looks like. It is stable and sure. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel, and we can think he who keeps his people, will neither slumber nor sleep. So he's not just going to lay out and take the full night's sleep because he's exhausted, nor is he going to nod off on you. Elijah the prophet, when he came up against the prophets of Baal in that famous scene where he douses the whole altar with water and calls down fire from heaven, remember he did that in response to the failure of the prophets of Baal. They couldn't call fire down from their God. And they, they danced around all day long, it says, trying to pull out every trick they knew to get their gods to answer. And Elijah mocked them, saying, perhaps he is asleep and must be wakened. Elijah knew that his God would never sleep. No prophet of Baal would ever be able to question whether the God of Elijah was asleep. You will sleep tonight. Most of you, somebody might work that shift and you'll sleep tomorrow. Eventually, you will sleep. God will not. You will nap this week or even this afternoon and God will not. You will tire out but God will not. His help and his keeping are so constant that he never closes an eye in weariness. We sometimes long to be awake so that we can control, so that we can be in the know, so that we can exercise care and provision. Some of you are still in the stage of baby monitors. Although I realized just this week, being with some family, that, you know, it's right there on your phone as an app now, not even a separate monitor. And, and the hope was that, that even when you're not there, that, that somehow you could still, like, exercise your responsibility and, and be what you need to be as a parent. 
reality is for me, you could turn that monitor up as loud as you could turn it up, and I'm not waking up. Like, it's it, it just not going to stir me. Mom had a better sensitivity to that. I, I, don't, I don't know. But the monitor is there, and our hope is that we'd hear the noise and we could run and provide care, even if we had slumbered a little bit and nodded off. It's a help in some ways. It alleviates our fear as parents that, we, that somehow we won't be everything our child needs, but you might as well embrace that reality. Eventually, you will sleep, and you'll sleep through your child's need even, perhaps, for a moment. And let it be a reminder when you wake up to the cry of your child and wonder how long have they been crying in their bed that our God never slumbers or sleeps. His, his help is so stable that we know it works, our foot won't slip, and it works always. He just never takes his eye off us. That's the stability of the help that we receive from the Lord. And there's a theological reason for this stability, for our certainty in the hope that comes from the Lord, and it's in verses 5 and 6. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. Here we consider the nature of God. It's the reason for the stability of the help. And it's the great hope for our need, verses 1 and 2. When we consider the nature of God, notice first that this keeping that shows up over and over again in this psalm here in verse 5, this keeping defines God. He's not just the Lord who keeps you or keeps your foot from falling or keeps you from evil. No, He is the Lord, your keeper. It becomes a definition of who God is. He keeps, well, yes. Yeah, He keeps, yes, you've told us that. He keeps, and He keeps saying keeps, but verse 5 tells us why he keeps telling us that God keeps us. It's because he is a keeper. Keeping defines God. It's who he is. And once we realize that God is a keeper, then we realize that God as keeper is enough. I lack nothing if the God who made heaven and earth says, I will keep you, because that's who I am. I'm the God who keeps. God is enough. And the psalmist makes that point by saying, this keeping will protect you from the perils of day. So whether it's the sun beating down as you walk up that barren mountain on the way to Jerusalem, or whether it's the peril by night, as the moon shines and you're wondering, are you safe in this encampment? Will the bandits come? Are there any uncertainties or unknowns in the darkness? No, whether it's day or night, God is enough. So this essentially is a fill-in-the-blank kind of response. What is it that troubles you? Can you see it squarely in the light? You know exactly what the danger is? Or there's some unknown fear out there? Whatever it is, the psalmist says, 
The Lord, by definition of his person, is a keeper. And he is enough for whatever you fill in in that blank. Name your trouble. What is it that will occupy your mind this week often because of the weight of the sorrow or the conflict or the struggle? God says that right there for that. I want to be your help. I will keep you even in that because I am a keeper and I am enough. He is enough for every known trouble and every unknown trouble. And so we must sing with the psalmist, the Lord is a keeper. The Lord is my keeper. Finally, We must see how this song anticipates a greater help and keeping to come. Verses 7 and 8. Let's understand keeping as the gospel. The psalmist says, The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Now, the language certainly would apply to the ascent. The Lord's going to help them on this journey as pilgrims. But there are some allusions here to even grander themes. The Lord will keep you from all evil, not only safe from the evil of bandits or bad circumstance, but from all evil. Any evil that exists you are kept safe. I think we find the the full joy of understanding that when we read Romans. And we read, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are kept from all evil when you're hidden in Christ by faith. So you're rescued from sin. The Lord will keep you from all evil. The Lord will provide a way for you to escape evil and all of its consequence, the judgment of God. You'll be rescued. And in that rescue, there comes a keeping so that somehow in your belonging to the Lord, you are safe now in your going in and your coming out. That just means all the time. You left your house in the morning, you ran all these errands, you did all this work, you stopped on the way home for this and that, you picked up some grocery, and then you get back home and you like crash and you think a whole day spent in all your going out and all your coming in, the Lord says, in everything you do, you are kept. Now, from this time forth and forevermore. Kind of open-ended. And not every reference of forever in the Old Testament speaks specifically to eternity because the word just kind of means way out there for a long time. But I think here we're safe to recognize that if the Lord is going to keep us from all evil, that keeping unfolds in the teaching of Scripture as both now, in this life, and for all eternity when God issues that ultimate death blow to sin and death, to evil, and we are forever kept 
because of our faith in Christ. He will keep your life, he says. Well, we just sang, for my life, he bled and died. Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied. He will hold me fast. Raised with him to endless life. He will hold me fast. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming forth from this time to forever. We know this because the psalmist said, He will hold us fast. He is our keeper. Are you trusting Christ to forgive you of your sin and to hold you secure? Right now, throughout this week of hardship and ultimately beyond this life forevermore. Is he your help for that kind of rescue? The church has long clung to this psalm as a psalm of hope that God will both rescue and then keep us always. That's why I wanted you to hear 1 Peter, even though we had studied that recently. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God is keeping you. He's a keeper. He's a guarder. And you are guarded if you are in Christ all the way to your eternal reward. Jude wrote to the church, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Christ. If we can think of God as having muscles, right? The Bible lets us do that. We're kept by his strong right hand, the scriptures would say. So if we'll think of God as having muscles, which he does not have a body, he's a spirit. But to help us think of his keeping, we would know this. God is flexing his muscle. He is exercising his muscle to guard you this week and all the way to eternity. The gospel is the message of God's forever keeping those who are forgiven and made righteous through Jesus. When we repent of our sin and put faith in Jesus, we are thrust into the hand of God, Jesus says in John 10, and no one is able to pluck us out of the Father's hand. We're kept. He guards because he is a keeper. God keeps us now and forever. But I want to close with a simple meditation that I've entitled, Really? The text says he keeps us from all evil. But life reveals to us all kinds of evil. Are we really kept from all evil? 
We've attended funerals. We've known sickness. We're aware of the cancer stories and the agony of its treatment. There are stories in this room of abuse and hurt. The church is being persecuted in mass around the globe to the death. It seems like we could justly question Psalm 121 when it declares so boldly, the Lord will keep you from all evil. Really? All evil? So what do we do with this? I think deep down we know it's true, but are are we not reading something right, or is this only mean like once we get to heaven? It's not an easy question, but let's at least try to begin answering it so our faith has kind of a path to start walking down. We have to understand this verse in the context of all of Scripture. And in the perspective of the one who's giving us this truth. God himself is saying, I will keep you from all evil. So what does that, what does that look like for us? I think back to Joseph in the book of Genesis. Now, obviously, Psalm 121 hadn't been written, but the truth would still exist. The Lord is our keeper, and thus the Lord will keep Joseph from all evil. And, and it looked like it was working. He, he had the favor of his father. He's not working in the fields like those other brothers. He's, he's got the coat that distinguishes him as kind of the honored son. And then, then he starts to feel the hatred of his brothers and their jealousy, and he's stripped naked and thrown in a pit. And then he overhears them talking about killing him. And then, maybe truly a fate worse than death, he's sold into slavery. And then he's falsely accused and goes from at least a decent job to living in a prison. And even the little glimpses of hope, like, hey, remember to tell Pharaoh about me interpreting the dream, even that fades away as he's forgotten for a few more years. You wonder if Joseph, if he heard you say, the Lord will keep you from all evil, would say, really? But we know what Joseph was thinking because he finally says it out loud. Years later now, God has brought him to the place where he's running Egypt. Pharaoh said here, take the ring, take the executive pen and the whole notepad of executive orders. You just do it all. I'll be on vacation out in the sand, right? You do it all. And his brothers show up and they don't recognize him. He finally reveals himself to them. And they're terrified because they know all of the evil that they did to Joseph. And Joseph disarms their fears 
by saying, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Same verb. Both have intention and purpose. And Joseph says, I know, it, it, we would label it evil. And all those things you did were horrible. But God was stamping in his providence over that evil good. Because every step was a journey, not just in Joseph's success story, but in Joseph being a savior figure of God's people. God was doing good to Joseph while his brothers were doing evil. Peter at Pentecost echoes Psalm 121 when he spoke of the evil that the Jews did as they crucified Jesus. This Jesus, Peter spoke, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So wait a minute. Lawless men, the Romans, at the bidding of the Jews, did an evil act in crucifying Jesus. But Peter says, God did that. This Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God was accomplishing your salvation when those evil men nailed Jesus to a cross. So we're left with this question, what, what power does evil really have over us? When the psalmist says the Lord will keep you from all evil, he's actually asking, is there any evil that exists in this world that is powerful enough to threaten the promise of God that he will work all things for the good of those who belong to him, Romans 8. It's as if the psalmist was anticipating that Romans 8 argument and believing that there is nothing in this world that is greater than God's power to work it for our good. And so the answer isn't as simple as, oh, okay, here's how you explain the Lord will keep you from all evil. It takes this enormous measure of faith to say, wait a minute, it looks like it's evil and it is an evil act and they will be accountable for that evil act. But somehow, only by faith can we translate the evil to good, believing that God will work all things together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. Yes, indeed, the Lord will keep us from all evil. He will work all things for good. And how do we know that? Romans continues with the reason for why you can believe the promise that God will keep you from all evil. And he says it this way, for, here's why, those whom he foreknow, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. T. 
to use fewer words like the psalmist did, you can believe that God will keep you from evil, that he will take all that evil and work it for good because he is a keeper. That's the language of predestined, called, justified, glorified. That's just a promise that he keeps because he's a keeper. Yes, we are kept from all evil. We are kept in this life because all evil is forced to accomplish God's good for us. And we are kept for eternity because Jesus said, you are mine. You are precious in my sight. No one can pluck you out of my hand. And the Father who gave you to me, no one can pluck you out of his hand. God keeps you now and forever. So this week, lift your eyes to the trials and ask, where's the help going to come from? And then believe God's words to you. My help comes from the Lord, your keeper. Heavenly Father, thank you for this short chorus that summons our faith in the maker of heaven and earth, who has also revealed himself as Lord and Savior. Lord, instruct us by this truth. Encourage us with your promises and keep us in your steadfast love. As we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.